Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Joshua chapter 4. We are reading verses 19 through chapter 5, verse 12. And we are covering a larger footprint, really, from chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5. Listen carefully to God's word. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took up out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. As we give thanks for your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would come and instruct us and lead us in the way of righteousness and know what it is for us to engage your plan and your purposes in the world today. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In Joshua chapter 5, we read of one of the saddest events in the Old Testament's entire history. It is the events recorded in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, where Israel, after witnessing the mighty acts of God, in which Israel and the company of the covenant people were delivered out of Egypt by miraculous events. 
And then coming through the wilderness, they go to Sinai where they encounter God. And then they come to the edge of the promised land. They are about to inherit the land that had been promised to Abraham and to Abraham's children and to Abraham's children's children. And there, as they are about to walk into that inheritance, men came back with reports that filled the people's hearts with fear. And there on the edge of the promised land, as they were about to step into their inheritance, the people began to complain and grumble to Moses. But they simply weren't being cynical or sarcastic. They said it would be better for us to return to Egypt. And they sought out to elect a leader who would take them back to Egypt. And while this can just look like a change in itinerary, it's important for us to recognize exactly what is happening in Israel on that day. As they turn away from the inheritance that God had promised them, and they say we want to go back to Egypt. The book of Hebrews captures it this way and says it is the sin of unbelief. Because what they were despising in that moment was the very promise of God. And rather than taking up that promise in faith and acting on it, they were cowering in fear that led to unbelief. And I know that it's easy to read the stories of Israel in the Old Testament and to think to ourselves, how boneheaded are they? Why, why can't they get it right? Why did they collapse in that day? But it's so important for us to consider what motivated that collapse. And the motivations behind it are completely understandable. Because we as the church today with the mission of God in front of us also have fears, we have anxieties, we have concerns and cares that can turn into disobedience where we fail to take up the inheritance that God has put in front of us. And we've seen that in Jesus Christ that inheritance is not a small patch of turf in the Middle East, but rather it encompasses the whole world. That this is the inheritance that the Son has won. And God calls us to go out into it and make disciples of all nations. And certainly there are fears and cares and concerns that often hinder us from stepping into that mission with the courage and faith that God desires for us to have. In Israel, in this second generation that we find in the book of Joshua, 40 years later, after that first failure, is once again sitting on the border of their inheritance. And you can imagine that there was fear and anxiety and self-concern. Many people were probably asking questions, is God going to make good on the promise that he swore to us? It would have been natural to encounter doubts and concerns. And in the midst of this, God orders Joshua to consecrate the people. We find the command in chapter 3, verse 5, that they were to consecrate themselves. And then through chapter 5, we discover what that consecration looks like. And what's essential for us to understand here is that God's antidote, the medicine that he applies to doubt and fear and uncertainty, is this consecration in which he sets apart his people and he pledges himself to them and promises that he will stand with them 
and be their God as they move ahead. And so it's important for us as we consider our part in God's mission to simply ask the question, how does a community consecrate itself for God's mission? How do we continually experience that? And what does the book of Joshua lead us into in this consecration? And there's three things that we'll work through briefly this morning. The first we find in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 4, where we see that to be this consecrated community, we are to contemplate God's mighty acts of deliverance. We've already seen in the book of Joshua that Joshua was to meditate upon the law of God. This isn't just the commands of God, but it's also the precepts of God and the promises of God. That when Joshua is commanded to meditate upon the law, he is to meditate upon all that God has done in delivering his people. And here in the book of Joshua, after the people have crossed over the Jordan River, there's a command given that the 12 men were to take 12 stones out of the river and they were to erect a monument. That monument was to stand as a perpetual memorial of what God had done for his people at the Jordan River. And so when they looked upon that memorial, they were to remember, they were to contemplate everything that God had done to redeem them and save them and take them into their inheritance. And this was the first step of consecration in which a monument was erected, in which the people were encouraged from generation to generation to consider and reflect, to contemplate, to meditate what exactly God had done for them. And it's no different for the church today. While we're not commanded to construct a monument, we are commanded to meditate upon everything God has done, to contemplate what God has done in Jesus in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Everything God has accomplished on our behalf in Jesus is to be the source of our meditation and of our thought. To be a consecrated community means that our minds and our consciences and our hearts are cleansed by the word of God. That we carry that word day and night considering it reminding ourselves of God's great love. Now typically, in evangelical churches, we have this invention called the quiet time. Undoubtedly, you've probably heard the word before, and as a college student, I was trained in the art of the quiet time. In fact, it was such a large piece of the college ministry that I was involved with, is that the quiet time was oftentimes valued over every other thing that a Christian could do, including going to church on Sunday. That the quiet time was the end-all, be-all of the Christian life. And so one of my roommates who was in ROTC and he was training to enter into the army, we lived together and we held one another accountable to the quiet time. And we had very rigorous specifications for what a good quiet time was. You had to write a certain number of words. You had to be diligent in that study, doing word studies across scripture. And it was slightly neurotic and out of control. But we were doing what we had been told. But then my roommate had to leave for the United States Army. He was entering into ranger school. 
And he said, Chuck, this is causing a crisis for me. I don't know what to do because I'm not going to have access to my Bible for eight weeks. How am I going to do my quiet time? And I know this sounds silly, but this really rocked our world. You know, he was going to be disobedient for eight weeks. We've been told that the quiet time was what you were supposed to do, and the way we were doing it was right next to righteousness. This is how Jesus did his personal Bible study. And so we were extremely concerned by this eight weeks. It was through that process of talking, though, as we hashed out what he was going to do over the eight weeks, that we came to something more profound and perhaps deeper about the quiet time. Because we were reflecting on places like Joshua 1.8 and Psalm 1, where the meditation upon the great acts of God and all that God has done in his law, all his commands, his precepts and his promises, that this was the goal of the Christian life. That this is the activity the Christians to give themselves to. And my friend was very good at scripture memory. And then he realized, it came clear to him, that perhaps the goal over those eight weeks was to meditate upon all the verses that he had committed to memory. And knowing that his God was for him in Jesus Christ, that his God forgave his sins, that his God would never forsake him, that his God would never leave him. And that this was the point of all the quiet times that he had been doing was to be able to meditate and digest and take in and inwardly absorb everything that God had revealed. And friends, this is where we want to be. This is what was happening in Israel with these 12 stones. It was to be a memorial that were to take people into contemplation and meditation on the great acts of God. And so a consecrated community is not one that simply does its quiet times all the same, and find certain stipulations fulfilled in that. Definitely not one that does so in a legalistic manner. But it is a community that takes the word of God on their minds and reflects on everything Jesus Christ has done for us and reflects on all of his commands and reflects on all of his goodness to us, his promises that are stronger than death, and holds those in their heart day and night, talking about them, discussing them. And this is the first piece of consecration. Now, the second thing we see in the passage is that we're to prioritize the formation and nurture of the next generation. If you look in chapter 4, in verse 6, and then also in 21, you see that these 12 stones taken from the river and then erected there by Gilgal had a specific purpose. Follow with me in verse 21. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. And so this monument, this memorial was not simply for meditation and contemplation by the adults, but it specifically had a direction to it to train the generation that was to come. That this God who delivered the people through the Red Sea and through the Jordan was their God. That he was committed to them. And these kids were being raised in the knowledge of this God from their earliest of days. They would be circumcised and then they would participate in the Passover. And that there was to be a robust educational system that went on day by day amongst the covenant community. And they were taught, and they were educated, 
because they have been set apart by the sign of circumcision. You see, God's idea for the covenant community was not that the children of Israel would be sent over to Canaan to hang out with the pagans until they converted. It was also not his idea that the parents were just to circumcise the kids and tell them that everything was okay, that they belonged to God because their foreskin had been cut. No, but rather because they had been circumcised, they were to be robustly discipled. That they had a special engagement to be the Lord's. They were to be the next generation of the church. They were to grow up into all of these promises and to place their faith in them and trust them, knowing that the Lord was good, that his steadfast love abounds forever. And as a consecrated community, we have to take that responsibility seriously. That we have to hold that out above many other things that perhaps may seem more attractive. But the education of the generation to come is a heavy responsibility upon this consecrated people. Several months ago when I was at our denomination's General Assembly, I was in conversation with several other ministers, peers around my age. And a discussion arose about what was taking place in our churches with regards to Christian education, particularly for children. One of the ministers had strong opinions about Sunday school. And he voiced those opinions and says, well, I really got two problems with Sunday school. He said, the main problem is my background, that I grew up going to church, I was in a nominal Christian family, I was at Sunday school every week, and then I went to church every week. We were very prescribed about that, and I did not know Jesus. And Sunday school is just a tired old program that God never commands. And he said, secondly, Sunday school is a horrible allocation of physical assets in a building. It takes so much space to do it. And to build the educational facilities you need as a church is just wasteful. There was a group of church planters around, and they all nodded in agreement. He was receiving support, and everyone felt good about the critiques of Sunday school. I was the odd man out after being a church planter myself and not having Sunday school for six years. I've been three cheers for Sunday school. And so the discussion turned because it wasn't so much about Sunday school. There is no command of God from about Sunday school. But there is a command of God to educate our children and our children's children. And that's the discussion we began to then have. How were our communities taking that seriously? Were the kids just being left in daycare all the time? Were they simply being read light Bible stories and let to have fun and be entertained? Or were they being robustly engaged to taught to be the next generation of the church, to be constantly told and prayed for and instructed in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to know God's great commitment to them in Jesus? Because however we do it, whether it's Sunday school or whether it's some other venue or through the youth group, all of our effort in this is not simply to try to reach out to other people. Our effort in this is to take up this command of God, to be this consecrated community, this community set apart for God by educating our children and taking them seriously as the next generation of the church. This is the mark of a consecrated community, 
to talk with our kids, to walk with them. You find this beautifully expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you follow with me in verse 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That this was built into the very constitution of the covenant community. That as we walk along the way, that as we sit and eat, that as we talk through the day, our conversation turns to the great mighty acts of God, what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, and we lead our children in the way, teaching them, instructing them. Third piece to this consecrated community is that we participate in covenant ceremonies. In chapter five, you'll notice after the memorial is built, you'll notice that Joshua then circumcises the men of Israel, and then the entire company, the entire nation, participates in the Passover meal. These were the Old Testament sacraments, sacred signs that were to set apart the nation in which they observed religious rituals and participated in them in order to consecrate themselves for God's purposes. Now, many people get uneasy at this point when we use language of ceremony and covenant. And there is an allergy in American evangelicalism to talking about ceremony and ritual. And for many people, they think, no, if you talk about ceremony, then you're on the way to ceremonialism. Or if you talk about ritual, you're on the way to ritualism. But let me suggest that that's not necessarily the case. Ceremonialism and ritualism are the products of dead faith. But what we find here in Israel is that living faith is sustained and it's renewed by these covenant ceremonies and covenant rituals. Things that the people of God were to do regularly and yearly in annual cycles in which God met with his people. And so ceremony and ritual is prescribed directly from God to us for the purpose of helping us, for the purpose of assisting us. And we have to ask the question, why is that, as we look at chapter 5? And there's three things that will expand out here in this point. But the first is this, is that the signs physically affirm God's promise. If hearing the word of God is the gospel for your ears, the sacraments of God are the gospel for all our other senses, for the taste, for the touch, for the sight, that this is God appealing to us in our human frame, knowing exactly who we are, that we don't just hear the gospel, but we also experience the gospel in this full-orbed manner. And he does so, and he has always done so from the time of Abraham forward, because he knows the weakness of our frame, and that we're often prone when we hear a word not to believe. And so in order to strengthen and confirm our faith, God gives us physical signs. Now it's important for us to consider those signs and how they work. Because it happens in chapter 17 where Abraham is given the sign of circumcision. 
And many people miss that that sign of circumcision comes on the heels of Abraham's greatest failure of faith. In chapter 12 and chapter 15, Abraham is promised that his descendants would become as many as the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Of course, the crisis is that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have no children. And they are old, they are advanced in years. And so how were they going to have these great number of descendants? How was God gonna make good on his word? And so Sarah concocts a plan by which Abraham would have a descendant. She smuggles Hagar in. Abraham sleeps with her and has a child with Hagar. Sarah believes that this is the way to make God's plan come to fruition. And yet what has happened is that Abraham has given up on the God who is able to take Sarah's dead womb and bring life to it. And so Abraham has collapsed in his faith. And then in chapter 17, we find the sign of circumcision given to Abraham. And it's a graphic sign. And it can be confusing to many. But the simplest way to put it is that on the organ of procreation, connected to the very promise of God, Abraham was reminded that graven on his flesh there was his failure. But overriding that failure is the faithfulness of God, that he would make good on what he said. Abraham carried that around in his body. And friends, this is the function of sacraments for us even today. As the signs of circumcision and Passover have been transferred into baptism and the Lord's Supper respectively, that these are physical signs that are to strengthen and confirm our faith in all that God has promised us in Jesus. And in the same way, it was tangible and real and helpful for Abraham, for the consecrated community, is to be tangible and real and helpful. We're not to see it as the Sunday where the service just goes a little bit longer and makes us late for the Jags game. We're not to see it as just that ceremonial bit that these Christians do, but rather through those tangible, physical signs, we're to engage with God and have our faith renewed and strengthened. That's the first piece that's going on here. The second is that through the signs, we actually participate in the promise of God. I want you to look with me at the wording that we find in chapter 4 as Joshua speaks of the people as they answer the question, what do these stones mean? If you look in verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, of, of the Lord is mighty. And it's interesting here to pay attention to the pronouns because he is speaking of future generations. When your children ask, what do this stack of stones mean? And when this book was written, it was sometime far later when the children of Israel asked, what does this stack of stones mean? You see that the us is used. 
And so these future generations were included in the people who crossed over the Jordan. You find the exact same logic operating in Deuteronomy 6, where it speaks of instructing children and saying, for you, you passed through the Red Sea when God parted the waters. And this is something peculiar to the Bible's language when it speaks of these sacraments, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, or of circumcision and Passover. That when we participate in these by faith, we are drawn into the promise of God and into the redemptive event itself. So Paul in Romans 6, he says, when we are baptized into Christ, we participate in his death and in his resurrection. Or if you follow in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is speaking about the Lord's table, he says that the blood of Christ, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, that the cup we drink, is it not a participation? Then he turns and says, the loaf we eat, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And this doesn't mean that we're literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus, but by faith we are, and we're participating in the promise of God, everything that has been given to us. And this is again the great value of these covenant ceremonies and rituals is that we come into contact and participate in the promises of God in a very unique, and even what our confession would use the language of a mystical way. This is a spiritual event, and this is why we hold it high, because God is uniquely present. And the third piece of why God works through these covenant ceremonies is that in the signs, we anticipate God's future fulfillments. We have the promises of God. They are sure and they're true. But we live in a time where it's already and it's not yet. We have these promises, they're sure possession, but we're waiting for the full inheritance of everything that is to come. And it can be easy for us when it comes to the sacraments to think that these are just supposed to engage our memory. That they're just supposed to lead us into meditation. They do assist you with that. But sacraments are so much more than that in God's economy, that it's not just a history lesson for you to remember an event that happened as God brought Israel out of Egypt or to remember the death of Jesus. It's not just to remember the event. It's to look forward to all that God has done through the event, that that event has a telos, it has a direction, it has a trajectory. And God has you on that trajectory. And as you journey through life in your own wilderness, meandering and finding your way to the fulfillment of everything that he's promised, is that we have to anticipate and be reminded of that. And friends, this is why the apostle in 1 Corinthians 11 says that we are to do this. We are to celebrate the Lord's Supper until the day Christ returns because it specifically is a meal with a future orientation. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 25, we see this very clearly. In Isaiah 25, the prophet speaks of a future day. This is what he says in verse six. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he is instituting this very meal that we have as a foretaste of the great banquet that we await when he returns. And each time we gather for that meal, as we will next Sunday, to consecrate ourselves to God, we'll remind ourselves of that great future day, sustaining our hope and holding fast to it, asking God to strengthen and confirm us that we continue in faith, that we not shrink away in fear like the Israelites did because we know we have that capacity. And this is why God has that ceremonial economy in the church. It's to help us. It's to strengthen us. It's to draw us to the future. And this is what a consecrated community does. It contemplates God's great acts continually. In that contemplation, it then specifically nurtures the next generation of the church that it takes a robust engagement with them, seeking to teach them and train them, that they would never remember days apart from Jesus, that they would call him their own, that they would know he is for them. And then that that community would strengthen and nurture their faith, hearing the word and promise of God and participating in these covenant ceremonies in order to renew and strengthen their faith. This is what it looks like to be consecrated for God's mission. This is where the Lord addresses our fears and our anxieties and our concerns. Allow him to do so, that you can be that unique people who goes into the great inheritance that lies before us. And let's pray for his help to do so. Father, we do thank you for the inheritance that your son has won and that you send us out to all nations to claim that inheritance as we announce that our Lord Jesus is Lord and King and has made reconciliation for sins. We know that we carry many fears, concerns, and anxieties about that mission. And Lord, we ask that you would consecrate us, that you would draw us into meditation, that you would draw us into certainty and assurance that you would enable us to instruct the next generation, that we would be that unique company of people you call your church and your body. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.